I have accepted to participate in this debate with some reluctance. In our pluralist North American society, <clears throat> religion in polite circles is usually not discussed for fear of offending someone whose religious beliefs are so strong that any hint of criticism may be interpreted as an insult or a foot down. On the other hand, I could not resist the invitation to discuss my own philosophy of life, secular humanism, which I believe is a valid philosophy or life stance not only appropriate but necessary for our times, with the idea that people should be aware that it is possible to develop a lifestyle and a commitment to human values without the necessity of believing in God or the supernatural and without the illusions of immortality or the promises of everlasting life. It is this commitment to the values of secular humanism embodying the desire for justice and a better society that is at the origin of my 20-year-old struggle for women's rights to safe medical abortion since it was the humanist movement in Canada which was the first public proponent of the idea that women should have this right and should be treated as equal, dignified citizens in our society. The opposition to women's rights, and in particular the right to abortion, is coming mainly from traditional religious groups. Thus, to discuss the merits of secular humanism as opposed to Christianity seemed a good subject for debate and will no doubt shed light on the underlying philosophies while explaining secular humanism and comparing it to Christian beliefs and attitudes. It will be my task to make certain statements and value judgments with which some of you obviously will not agree. I hope that I will be able to state my case without being insensitive to strongly held beliefs. The majority of us were brought up in a certain religion, and to question its tenets was forbidden or discouraged and must have seemed dangerous to a small child who would be afraid of losing the affection of parents or even of being scolded or punished. Thus, most people remained within the fold of their religion, of their parents or culture, as a form of ancestor worship and do not subject the dogmas or beliefs of that religion to critical scrutiny. It would be indelicate for me or anyone else to declare that someone's mother or father is ugly or wicked. Similarly, for people with a strong belief in an anthropomorphic God, a personal God to whom they can pray and from whom they can expect rewards for good deeds or punishment for misdeeds, a simple statement from me that there is no evidence that such an entity exists may be taken as an insult to cherished beliefs which are part of their personal makeup. No insult is intended, though, and intellectual honesty compels me to tell the truth the way I see it. I hope that we live in enlightened times where most persons are aware that there are various religions or philosophies of life and have learned to tolerate or live in peace with people whose religion is different from theirs. Also, we are debating in front of an educated, intelligent audience. My humanist beliefs include the principle of freedom of religion and conscience, and I respect deeply held beliefs, although I may not share them, or may even consider that they are harmful to those who do. 
I wish therefore to apologize in advance to those who may feel hurt by my critique of religion. My intent, again, is not to hurt anyone, but to examine ideas and beliefs in the light of our present-day knowledge and the consequences that flow from them. Secular humanists accept the knowledge gained from science and the scientific method as the most likely explanation of what reality and the facts are. Stated differently, the accumulated knowledge of humankind due to the scientific method is the most, the most reliable knowledge we have. This is in contrast to Revelation or holy books, be it the Bible, the Koran, or the Talmud, or other such supposedly holy texts, most of which were created long before the scientific method was consistently used, which is only about 350 years ago. Thus, science and its conclusions were and still are in direct conflict with religious ideas and were often suppressed by religion. Galileo, Copernicus, and Darwin are only a few examples of brilliant people who arrived at conclusions which clashed with the traditional beliefs. To this day, many people believe in astrology in spite of the data provided by astronomy. Many believe in creationism, a religious holdover trying to deny the validity of the theory of evolution. Secular humanists accept the knowledge of the universe as provided by science and try to develop an ethic and a life stance which incorporate that knowledge and is pertinent to our circumstances. As a corollary, humanists will not believe statements just because someone, be it the greatest authority, has made them, but will ask for proof that any statement of fact or theory be plausible or probable and in accordance with facts already known. The humanist attitude is one of cautious skepticism until proof is in, not one of blind faith in the charismatic leader or prophet or in holy texts that are at variance with present-day knowledge. Secular humanists do not believe in God for the simple reason that there is no proof that such an entity exists. The idea of an anthropomorphic male god, white beard and all, can be explained from a knowledge of psychology as a need to have a powerful father out there in the heavens because of the long maturation process of the human child and the desire to continue in a state of dependency on such a powerful protective father or mother. It is a projection of an infantile need. There is simply no evidence for such a belief. Most people nowadays believe God to be some ill-defined power that created the universe and is concerned about us to some degree. All the evidence we have is that the universe is cold and indifferent, that there is nobody out there who has the power or who cares enough about our individual lives or our collective faith. It is clear that it is up to us humans to care about one another, to create good conditions of life on our planet, and that it is our responsibility to use the enormous power that humankind has accumulated 
wisely to protect ourselves, other species, the environment, and the planet itself. To do this, we need a different morality and ethics from the one we inherited from the traditional religions. In an overpopulated world, we no longer can afford to heed the biblical injunction, go forth and multiply. We have to reduce overpopulation and the consequent soiling and destruction of the environment. The biggest obstacle to such an achievement are the fundamentalists in the Catholic and Muslim religions who oppose effective contraception, abortion, and even sex education. It is obvious that we need a new innovative, creative morality if we are to survive and to live this life more fully, utilizing the human potential for joy, contentment, creativity, and a loving relationship to others and the universe. Secular humanists do not believe that there is life after death for any one of us. Biology teaches us that you are born, mature, get old, and die, so that others might be born and live. At death, our bodies decay, and that is the end of us. Humanists do not believe in duality of flesh and spirit, body and soul, in the idea that the soul lives on while the body dies. There simply is no evidence for it. In any case, since we only have one life to live, the question becomes, what kind of life? And what can we do to make this life more meaningful, more enjoyable, more creative and satisfying? And here we come to certain conclusions based on our knowledge from psychology, psychiatry, the social sciences, and others. Bertrand Russell, the great British philosopher, said that the good life is based on love guided by reason. Eric Fromm, the noted psychoanalyst, said that, quote, what is good is what promotes human growth. What is bad is what stunts that growth. Fromm postulated growth towards the development of human power and potential to become mature, loving, caring, and productive. How do we arrive at a state of affairs permitting people to utilize the maximum of their potential and for self-actualization? Again, we should look to what psychology and psychiatry have taught us about child development and the enormous significance of the first formative years on the laying down on the of the foundations of personality. This is why the right to contraception and abortion is so important. <clears throat> the issue of abortion provides the best illustration of the profound difference between humanist ethics and traditional religious attitudes. The former are based on concern for individual and collective well-being and are able to incorporate all available modern data and knowledge whereas the latter are bound by dogma and traditions to sexist, irrational prohibitions against abortion and women's rights, and those espousing these views are basically indifferent to the enormous avoidable suffering they themselves 
are inflicting on individuals and on the community. Most of the debate that has been raging about abortion around the world has surrounded the question of morality. Is it ever moral or responsible for a woman to request and receive an abortion, or is, it, or is abortion always immoral, sinful, or criminal? When you listen to the rhetoric of the anti-abortion faction, or read its imprecise terms about the unborn, you get the impression that every abortion kills a child. Consequently, it cannot be condoned under any circumstances. With the sole exception of where the life of the pregnant woman is endangered by the pregnancy, a condition that is now extremely rare. This position that abortion is always wrong and that there is a human being in the womb from the moment of conception is a religious idea mostly propagated by the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church and espoused by many fundamentalist Protestant groups, though not by the majority of Catholics and Protestants, nor by some liberal Christian denominations, for example, the United Church. Let us briefly examine this idea. At the moment of conception, the sperm and the ovum unite, creating one cell called the zygote. To proclaim that this one cell is already a full human being and should be treated as such is so patently absurd that it is almost difficult to refute. It is as if someone claimed that one brick is already a house and should be treated with the same respect a full house deserves. Even if you have a hundred bricks or two hundred bricks, it is not yet a house. For it to be a house, it needs an internal organization, it needs a functional organization. It needs plumbing, it needs electricity, and other things. The same is true for a developing embryo. In order for it to be a human being, it needs an internal organization, it needs organs, it especially needs a human brain to be considered fully human. This entity is the result of sexual intercourse where procreation is often not the goal, and whether it is called a zygote, a blastocyst, an embryo, or a fetus, it does not have all the, all the attributes of a human being and thus cannot properly be considered one. It may be called a potential human being. But remember that every woman has the potential to create 25 children in her lifetime. The idea that any woman who gets pregnant as a result of non-procreative sexual intercourse must continue with the pregnancy does not take into consideration the fact that there is a tremendous discrepancy between the enormous potential of human fertility and the real-life ability of women and couples to provide all that is necessary to bring up children properly. The morality of any act cannot be divorced from the foreseeable consequences of that act. Should a girl of 12 or a woman of 45, or any woman for that matter, be forced to continue a pregnancy and be saddled with bringing up a child for 18 years without any regard for the consequences, without any regard for the expressed will or desire of that woman or of the couple. The anti-abortion people say yes. Again, this proposition is so absurd that it is almost difficult to refute. The more absurd it is, the more difficult it is. Haven't we learned anything by observing events in countries where abortion is illegal, where women are forced to perform self-induced abortions, 
but they are forced into the hands of quacks where many die and more are injured for life or lose their fertility. What about the children often abandoned to institutions where they have no father or mother, where they suffer so much emotional deprivation and trauma that many become psychotic, neurotic, or so full of hate and violence that they may become juvenile delinquents and criminals who will kill, rape, and maim. When a person is treated badly in childhood, that inner violence manifests itself when he or she is grown up. The pro-choice philosophy maintains that the availability of good medical abortion protects the life, health, and fertility of women and allows children to be born into homes where they will receive love, care, affection, and respect for their uniqueness so that these children may grow up to be joyful, loving, caring, responsible members of the community, able to enter into meaningful relationships with others. Thus, reproductive freedom, access to legal abortion, to contraception, and by extension to sexual education, protects women and couples, and is probably the most potent preventive medicine in psychiatry, as well as the most promising prevention of crime in our society. Since I talk about abortion, I think it would be also good to talk about other areas connected to sexuality and connected to self-esteem. There's been an article published in the Humanist in Canada by Dr. Wendell Waters a few years ago, which is called Christianity and Mental Health, in which he proposed many certain ideas which are sort of novel, and which purport to show that some of the fundamental ideas and dogmas of Christianity are detrimental to the development of a healthy emotional, emotional personality. There are many other areas which I would like to examine, and uh, since I only have two minutes, I just want to indicate what they are. The area of the development of the human personality and the bad effects of believing for instance, in original sin, the idea that someone, a baby that's just born, which according to humanists has inherent dignity as a potentially loving, caring human being, already at birth suffers a defect of the soul, original sin, and is therefore considered to be bad or wicked, and very often has to be punished in order to bring it onto the right path. The area of, the whole area of the attitude of dualism, where the body and flesh are separated from one another, which prevents people from integrating all their faculties, whether they be mental or emotional or bodily, into one organic whole and achieve wholeness. Uh, some of the areas of sexuality, the attitudes to various sexual um, predispositions and the attitude to women and this is understandable that most attitudes to women which are put downs and do not recognize the equality of women and their special needs that most of those people who oppose women as equal partners 
in the human adventure, those people are mostly based in the traditional religions, whether it be Judaism or Islam or Christianity. And it's easy to understand because most of these religions were created 3,000, 2,000, 1,500 years ago where we lived in a male-dominated society where women were not equals. And it's only in the last maybe 25, 30 years that women and the feminist revolution has succeeded in bringing to our public awareness that women deserve their place in society, that they deserve to be equal, that they deserve to be given equality and access to careers and talents, and that the talents of half of our population finally uh, will be accepted and will be part of the human adventure. And it's not surprising that the opposition to abortion, the opposition to women's rights, is usually based in the traditional religions and people who hanker after a lifestyle where women were oppressed and did not have full equality. I hope I'll be able to extend some of these remarks later on during uh, our rebuttals. Thank you very much. I want to begin by expressing my thanks to Campus Crusade for Christ for inviting me to participate in this important event. And I also want to say how privileged I feel to be debating someone like Dr. Morgenthaler. I have almost a reverence for those who suffered under Hitler's Holocaust. And when I learned that Dr. Morgenthaler had survived Auschwitz, I felt very humbled to be debating this man. My sharp disagreement with his views should not be interpreted as any derogation of his person. Now, when we ask the question, secular humanism versus Christianity, which is the more rational worldview, we are presumably asking which view is true. And that point deserves to be underscored this evening. We are not asking which view do we find the most appealing or which view do I like the best. We are asking which view is the truth. And I think this is important because in Dr. Morgenthaler's first speech, I heard almost no argument or evidence whatsoever that suggests that secular humanism is true. What we heard was a description of some of their ethical beliefs, but I heard virtually no proof or argument given that shows that this is the truth. And so I want to invite Dr. Morgenthaler to begin again in his next speech and give us some arguments as to why he thinks humanism is the truth. Now, in tonight's debate, I'm going, on the contrary, to defend two major contentions. Number one, there are no good reasons to believe that secular humanism is true. And number two, there are good reasons to think that Christianity is true. Let's look at that first major contention together. There are no good reasons to think that humanism is true. As its name suggests, the distinguishing marks of humanism are its dual commitments that God does not exist and that human beings are the source of all value. The Humanist Manifesto states, as non-theists, we begin with humans, not God. Moral values derive their source from human experience. Similarly, Dr. Morgenthaler asserts, there is no personal God. And humankind, guided by reason and love, will bring about a more joyous and meaningful life. Now, I want to take issue with both of these commitments. First, I see no good reason to deny that God exists. Dr. Morgenthaler says, as a humanist, 
he doesn't believe in God because there is no proof for God. But you see, atheism is just as much a claim to knowledge as is theism. The atheist claims to know the proposition, there is no God, just as the theist claims to know there is a God. Atheism is therefore just as much a claim to knowledge and therefore just as much in need of rational justification as theism. If the humanist is to establish his philosophy, his worldview, he must do more than merely refute the theist's proofs for God. He must offer proofs against God. But the problem is that nobody has been able to construe a proof that God does not exist. Dr. Morgenthaler says, the anthropomorphic God with a long white beard is a projection of man's human needs. Perhaps, but that's clearly not the Christian concept of God. Besides, I would point out that according to Professor Paul Witz, a psychologist at the State University of New York, in an interesting article entitled The Psychology of Atheism, he argues that the psychological projection theories of Freud and uh, Marx, for example, can be turned on their head. You can actually argue that Freud and Marx and others are atheists because of the psychology uh, of their background lacking a father figure in their home. It's very interesting to note that many of these prominent figures uh, were raised by uh, their mothers alone. The father was absent from the home. He says the sword cuts both ways. Therefore, I think that we need to look at better arguments than this. I'd like to invite again Dr. Morgenthaler to provide some proof for that first humanist commitment that there is no personal God. Secondly, I see no good reason to think that human beings are the source of all value. For consider the following dilemma. Either God exists or he doesn't. Now, if God exists, there's no good reason to think that human beings are the source of value. For how do you know that God is not the source of value, as many Christians maintain, and that human beings are of value because they are made in the personal image of God? Hence, if God exists, there's no good reason to think that humanism is true. Suppose, then, that God does not exist. There's still no good reason to think that humanism is true. For the question at once arises, why should we regard human beings as the source of moral value? Once you get rid of God, who's to say where values come from or whether values exist at all? Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist of the last century who proclaimed the death of God, understood this all too well. He tells the story of the madman who in the early morning hours burst into the marketplace, lantern in hand, crying, I seek God, I seek God. Since those standing about did not believe in God, he provoked much laughter. Did God get lost, they yell, or maybe he's hiding, and thus they taunted him and laughed. Then, writes Nietzsche, the madman turned in their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried, I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But what did we do when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying us through an infinite nothing? Is not night and more night coming on all the while? Have we not heard anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? God is dead. And we have killed him. How shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? The crowd stared at the madman in silence and astonishment. 
At last he dashed his lantern to the ground. I have come too early, he said. This tremendous event is still on its way. It has not yet reached the ears of man. Men did not truly comprehend the consequences of what they had done in killing God. But Nietzsche predicted that someday men would realize the consequences of their atheism and that this realization would usher in an age of nihilism, that is, the destruction of all meaning and value in life. The end of Christianity, according to Nietzsche, means the advent of nihilism. This most gruesome of guests is standing already at the door. Our whole European culture is moving, wrote Nietzsche, with a tortured tension that is growing from decade to decade as toward a catastrophe. Restlessly, violently, headlong, like a river that wants to reach the end, that no longer reflects, that is afraid to reflect. I think the specter of Friedrich Nietzsche must haunt every humanist. For if there is no God, then why wouldn't nihilism be true? Notice the question here is not whether we recognize that human beings have value. Of course we do. We agree on that. Rather, the question is, what is the basis or the foundation in your worldview for that recognition? If there is no God, then what's so special about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts of nature, which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust, lost somewhere in the heart of a hostile and mindless universe, and are doomed to perish individually and collectively in the somewhat distant future. I'll be honest with you, and I mean this, if I were not a Christian, I'd still never be a humanist. It takes too much faith. If I were not a Christian, I'd be a nihilist or a hedonist and just live for pleasure. Like they say, grab for all the gusto you can get. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But I can't see any reason to make a leap of faith and become a humanist. In this sense, humanism is a faith commitment to the ultimate value in human being, of human beings in a non-theistic world. But I can't see any reason for the life of me to think that this uh, worldview is true. If God exists, there's no good reason to think humanism is true. If God does not exist, there's no good reason to think humanism is true. Now, since God either exists or he doesn't, it follows logically that there is no good reason to think that humanism is true. Hence, we've seen two fatal weaknesses in the humanist position. First. There's no good reason to deny that God exists. And second, there's no good reason to think that human beings are the source of value. Therefore, I think we can conclude our first contention that there are no good reasons to think that humanism is true. Now, that leads to our second contention. There are good reasons to think that Christianity is true. Central to the Christian worldview are the beliefs that a personal creator exists, and that he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not claiming that I can prove these with some sort of mathematical certainty. I'm just saying that there are good reasons for accepting these beliefs. First, a personal creator exists. The Bible teaches that a finite time ago, God created the universe out of nothing. Now, this belief is eminently reasonable, both from a philosophical and a scientific perspective. Philosophically, the idea of a beginningless universe seems absurd. 
The series of events can't just go back and back and never have a beginning. There had to be some beginning point to get started from. Just think about it for a minute. If there wasn't any beginning, then that means that the number of past events is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the idea of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions, unless you impose some wholly arbitrary rules to prevent this. This shows that the idea of infinity is just an idea, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, perhaps the greatest mathematician of this century, states, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature, nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But this entails that the number of real past events must therefore be finite, and that therefore the universe began to exist. Or look at it this way. Suppose that the past were infinite. How could today ever arrive? For before the present moment could arrive, the moment before it would have to arrive. But before that moment could arrive, the moment before it would have to arrive. And so on and so forth, back to infinity. You never get any foothold to get started from. It's sort of like trying to jump out of a bottomless pit. Before any moment could arrive, an infinite number of prior moments would have to arrive. And thus, you could never get to today. But obviously, here we are. That means that the series of past events must be finite, and that therefore the universe had a beginning. But if everything had a beginning, then the obvious question arises, where did it come from? Either it popped into being, uncaused, out of nothing, or else it was created. Now, since something cannot come out of nothing, the Christian belief in a creator is eminently reasonable. This philosophical reasoning has received dramatic scientific confirmation from discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. Evidence from the expansion of the universe indicates that the universe began to exist in a cataclysmic explosion from a state of infinite density called the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. Space and time were created in that event as well as all the matter and energy in the universe. Therefore, as the Cambridge astronomer Fred Hoyle points out, the Big Bang theory requires the creation of the universe out of nothing. This is because, as one goes back in time, he reaches a point at which, in Hoyle's words, the universe was shrunk down to nothing at all. Thus, what the Big Bang model entails is that the universe had a beginning and was created out of nothing. Now, what is the atheist supposed to say at this point? As Anthony Kenny of Oxford University urges, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. Robert Jastrow, the director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, says that the discovery that the universe began to exist surprised everybody except the theologians. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for thousands of years, those who have believed what the Bible says have known the truth, which scientists have begun to discover only within the last 50 years. Or, as Jastrow puts it, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. 
And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> Thus, science itself points us to the creator God of the universe. In light, then, of both philosophical reasoning and scientific evidence, then, it seems to me that the Christian is amply justified in believing in a creator of the universe. But that leads me, then, to my second subcontention, namely that Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. Jesus claimed to be the revelation of God, and he proved that claim by his resurrection from the dead. Now, most people would probably never think to investigate the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. They'd say, this is something you just take by faith or not. But I was funded for two years by the West German government to carry out research on the historicity of that event. And I was surprised to find that the evidence for that event is remarkably good. I've written three books on my findings, and I teach a 30-hour course on this subject, so obviously my remarks here can only be of a very summary nature. There seem to me to be three main historical facts that support the resurrection of Jesus. The empty tomb, the appearances of Christ alive after his death, and the very origin of the Christian faith. Let's look briefly at each one of these. First, the evidence indicates that Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers on Sunday morning. According to Jakob Kramer, a German scholar who has specialized in the study of the resurrection narratives, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. And he lists 28 prominent scholars in support, a list of which his own name could be added. I found at least 16 more that he neglected to mention. According to the New Testament critic D.H. Van Dalen, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. Second, the evidence indicates that on different occasions, separate individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the late Norman Perrin of the University of Chicago, the more we investigate the traditions with regard to the appearances, the firmer the rock begins to appear upon which they are based. These appearances were bodily and physical, and they were witnessed not only by believers, but also by skeptics, unbelievers, and even enemies. Third, the very origin of the Christian faith implies the reality of the resurrection. We all know that Christianity sprang into being somewhere in the middle of the first century. What caused it to come into being? Why did it arise? Well, all scholars agree that Christianity began because of the conviction of the earliest disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead, and they proclaimed salvation in his name everywhere that they went. But where in the world did they come up with that belief? If you deny that Jesus really did rise from the dead, then you've got to explain the disciples' belief either in terms of Christian influences or in terms of Jewish influences. Now, obviously, it can't be explained in terms of Christian influences for the simple reason that there wasn't any Christianity yet. But neither can it be explained in terms of Jewish influences, 
because the Jewish concept of resurrection was radically different from Jesus' resurrection. As the renowned New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias puts it, nowhere does one find in the literature of ancient Judaism anything comparable to the resurrection of Jesus. The most plausible explanation, therefore, of the disciples' belief is that Jesus really did rise from the dead, just as they said. Attempts to explain away these three great independently established facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no naturalistic, plausible explanation of these facts. Therefore, once again, it seems to me that the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. Since there are thus good reasons to believe that a personal creator exists and that he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, I think we can see that there are good reasons to believe that Christianity is true. Thus, in summary, I think we've seen that first, there are no good reasons to believe that humanism is true, and secondly, there are good reasons to believe that Christianity is true. We can therefore agree, I think, that Christianity is the more rational worldview. It is not my intention here to, uh, to engage in gladiatorial combat or to nail them down or whatever else. I wish to address you, uh, I wish to appeal to your reason and to present views which I hope will stimulate your thinking. And even if you might be committed Christians, that's fine with me. We live in a pluralist society where there are many religions. And I think it's important that we learn to live in peace and harmony with people who have different religious views or philosophical views or different lifestyles, because otherwise the power of destruction that we have on this planet might overtake us all and the human race might disappear from the earth if you engage in the kind of cruel warfare that characterized religious wars in the past. So it's important to change our attitudes and be more tolerant of people who have different ideas, different religions, and different philosophies. Well, Dr. Craig asks, which is true, secular humanism or Christianity? Well, obviously, he's looking for absolute truth. I don't look for absolute truth any longer. I don't think it exists. We live in a finite world. Each one of us is a finite body with a finite, finite potential. Uh, both physical and intellectual and emotional, and uh, I don't think it is useful to look for absolutes. Those who want to do that, fine with me. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Craig says that I have to, there are good reasons to believe there is a personal creator. I don't care any such reason if I did. I'd be very happy to accept the idea that personal God who cares about me, uh, who uh, watches over me, who watches that my plane that I take occasionally won't fall down, uh, things like that. I remember uh, vividly the uh, story of a plane that uh, crashed and there was only one survivor out of 150. 
And he said, there must be a God because I'm alive. But what about the other 149? <laughs> what about the millions of people who died as a, as a result of natural disasters, floods and famine and war? Why, if there is a personal creator who cares, who is all-powerful, omnipotent, who's all-knowing, who knows everything, why didn't he prevent all these evils? Why did he let so many babies die in all these wars? They couldn't be sinful. <clears throat> and I wish to tell you a personal experience. As Dr. Craig has mentioned, I'm a survivor of a German concentration camp. And at the end of the war, uh, when I was facing death out of starvation, I desperately wanted to survive, and I considered briefly the idea that maybe there's a God out there who will protect me, who will make me survive. But unfortunately, this avenue was close to me because around me there are tens and hundreds of people who prayed daily to that God, and they died. And here, I was an atheist. I survived. Why? Well, some of you probably say God works in mysterious ways. And that's a good explanation for anything that you cannot understand. And the idea of God obviously came because, because people didn't know about the universe. They thought that the sun was a God and the rivers and mountains were God. And the science came about and gave more and more explanations. God eventually was left to explain the gaps in our knowledge, so-called God, God of the gaps. And these gaps are slowly diminishing because science explains more and more of what we are about and the nature of the universe. And I'm glad that Dr. Craig accepts the Big Bang Theory. It's a scientific theory. It happened 15 billion years ago. It's the most plausible theory now. Christianity is only 2,000 years. Judaism is about 3,000, 4,000 years. Islam is about 1,500 years. There are many other world religions. Why is Christianity more worthy of belief than Islam, or Judaism, or Hinduism, or any other of a hundred different religions who all claim they're the only right, true religion? There's absolutely no reason except people who have been brought up as Christians, have been taught as youngsters not to question, not to doubt, because doubting the word of God is bad, it's wicked. Children were punished for doubting, and one of the greatest reproaches I make to organized religion is the fact that religion does not permit the full range of intelligence to be used by children. They don't allow them to question, they don't allow them to doubt, and the child eventually learns that in order to gain the approval of his parents, certain areas cannot be touched or questioned. And when you accept that, <clears throat> in addition, in areas, the area of sexuality where the child is curious, and again, it's an area of taboo. Again, another area is taken away from the child's creative questing intelligence. And I think that's bad for the full development of of children, of their full range of intelligence. <clears throat> I'm not a biblical scholar. Uh, I don't know about what happened to Jesus. Uh, we don't even know whether he really existed. 
And uh, some of you may have seen the movie The Last Temptation of Christ, which is a very interesting movie because in that movie, a man says, St. Paul, I think, if Christ didn't live and he wasn't what he was, he would have had to invent him. So the legend of Christ is important. We don't know what, the, what he really said. We don't know anything really about him except what came by word of mouth and was incorporated into the holy books. If you want to believe it, I have no objection at all. There are many decent, nice, loving, caring Christians around. As there are many Muslims and Jews and Hindus, it does not depend on the religious faith you have. There are, <clears throat> I could uh, cite a whole number of detrimental influences. Why accepting Christian dogma is bad for the development of a healthy personality, and that's what comes to mind first, is the dualism accepted from the Greeks by Christian dogma which divided the person into flesh and spirit. And everything that was spirit was extolled, whereas everything that was flesh was somehow base or wicked or unacceptable. And this is why pleasure was bad and the body was bad and the full use of sexuality and integrated sexuality that should be enjoyed, which could give you pleasure and rapture and ecstasy and the loving embrace of another person was somehow unacceptable or looked down upon as sinful and bad because it's of the flesh. Humanists do not believe that. They believe that we are at all an integrated part and that's important for us for our development and functioning in society, for our enjoyment of life to be able to integrate all our functions, the sexual function, our body, our intelligence, our mind, our creativity, our appreciation of art, all this is important. So again, <clears throat> um, I have only two minutes, I can't go into the details of what I want to say. Again, hedonism or pleasure principle, the fact that you do not believe in God, because there's no evidence for it, does not mean that you necessarily are sinful or bad people. On the contrary, it is, this is the only life we have, and we better make it meaningful and enjoyable and be able to relate to other people, not to some entity out there who doesn't uh, talk back. Uh, I think it's more important for people to communicate with each other, to develop negotiation skills, to be able to relate to each other, rather than to a deity who either doesn't care or it's just not there. Uh, so again, we come back to the quality of life. What kind of life can we have on this planet? And what kind of life, according to all our knowledge, should we promote so that babies that are born can grow up to be loving, caring, responsible members of the community? Thank you. Let's look again at those two contentions that I've chosen to defend in tonight's debate. First, there's no good reason to think that humanism is true. Dr. Morgenthaler's response to this intrigues me. He says, I don't look for absolute truth. That's not the sort of thing I'm interested in. Well, now that's so peculiar, because didn't he say in his first speech that humanists will ask for proof for any statement of fact or theory? 
that they will accept nothing by faith? The fact is, and I found this over and over again with humanists, is that they trumpet the importance of reason, proof, fact, scientific evidence, except when it comes to examining the credentials of their own worldview, their own philosophy of life. And then they completely give up the task and accept humanism by faith. I don't think we've heard any good reasons in the, tonight's debate that uh, humanism is true. Let's look at my subcontentions. First, there's no good reason to deny that God exists. Now, here we did get some argument. Dr. Morgenthaler says there's the problem of evil in the world. I think in handling this admittedly difficult problem, we have to distinguish between the intellectual problem of evil and the emotional problem of evil. With regard to the intellectual problem of evil, let me say two things. Number one, there is no logical inconsistency between the three propositions, God is omnipotent, God is all good, and evil exists. No philosopher has ever been able to demonstrate a logical inconsistency between those three propositions. In fact, on the contrary, you can actually show that they are consistent simply by adding a fourth premise, namely, God has a good reason for permitting evil. Now, I may not know what that reason is in every single case, but there's no reason to think that I should be privy to the plans of the Almighty. The atheist seems to think that if God has a reason for permitting evil, that this must be absolutely clear to us and we must understand it. But there's simply no grounds for thinking that I should be in the uh, council chambers of God when he plans the universe. So long as that fourth proposition is even possible, there's no logical inconsistency between God being omnipotent, all good, and evil existing. But secondly, and paradoxically, you can actually construct a proof for the existence of God from evil. Let me run it by you. Number one, premise one, if God does not exist, objective values do not exist. If there is no God, then morality uh, is simply a matter of human choice, human preference. There aren't any objective transcendent values. Second premise, evil exists. This is the premise furnished by the atheist. Three, therefore, objective values exist. If evil actually exists, then there are objective values. Certain things are really wrong. They're really evil. Number four, therefore, God exists. If objective values cannot exist without God, and objective values do exist, as is evident from real evil in the world, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. Therefore, it seems to me that there is really no intellectual problem of evil that confronts the Christian theist. But there is that second problem, the emotional problem of evil. That is to say, people don't like a God who permits suffering and evil in the world. But the problem is that this emotional problem uh, has no philosophical value. It doesn't show that God doesn't exist. It doesn't show that theism is not true. And I think we can go some way toward alleviating the emotional problem of evil, too, when we recall that God doesn't stand back aloof and distant from the world that he's made. That according to Christian theism, God has entered the world, entered history in the person of Jesus Christ, and bore our suffering and our pain himself, and experienced it himself. On the cross, Jesus innocently suffered more evil, more suffering than any human being in the history of the world, because on the cross, according to Christian belief, he himself bore the penalty for the sin of all of mankind and felt separation from God and the penalty for our sins, yours and mine. 
And therefore, God is not an aloof and distant God. On the contrary, he's the suffering God who shares our pain and suffering with us. And I think that can go toward alleviating the emotional problem of evil. But the point remains, however you look at it emotionally, there's no good reason to deny that God exists. And central to the humanist perspective is, as Dr. Morgenthaler says, the position that there is no personal God. He's got to support that contention. Secondly, I said there's no good reason to think that human beings are the source of absolute, uh, or are the source of value. Um, I said if God exists, then he would be the source of value. Morgenthaler doesn't dispute the point. I said if God does not exist, then why wouldn't nihilism be true? Dr. Morgenthaler responds, if there is no God, that doesn't mean that we're all bad people and that we don't live moral lives. I agree entirely. He's missing the point. The point is this. There is no foundation in the philosophy of worldview of humanism for affirming the value of human beings that we all do accept. Insofar as Dr. Morgenthaler chooses to live morally, he does so in a way that is inconsistent with his worldview, because humanism, atheism, doesn't provide any reason to think that human beings are the source of value. Let me quote Bertrand Russell, whom he cited. Russell says that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no hero heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things are so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. What Russell realized is that without a theistic framework, life is ultimately meaningless. There is no basis for affirming value in, in life. The Canadian uh, philosopher Kai Nielsen, an atheist from the University of Calgary, writes, We have not been able to show that reason requires the moral point of view, or that all really rational persons, unhoodwinked by myth and ideology, should not be individual egoists or classical amoralists. Reason doesn't decide here. The picture I have painted for you is not a pleasant one. Reflection on it depresses me. Pure practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not take you to morality. Death in particular, I think, annihilates every purpose and motivation for right living. Uh, as we saw with Russell, all the contributions of mankind ultimately are destined to extinction. And therefore, in the end, it really makes no difference how you live, whether you do right and wrong. Stuart Easton, the historian, says there's no objective reason why man should be moral unless morality pays off in his social life or makes him feel good. There's no objective reason why man should do anything, save for the pleasure it affords him. So therefore, we might as well live for self-interest. Acts of self-sacrifice are particularly inept on an atheistic, humanistic worldview. John Hick, the philosopher of religion, says this of self-sacrifice on the atheistic worldview. He says, in the more gregarious of lower forms of life, such as the ant, instinct plays the role played by morality in human life. The individual ant fulfills its function automatically in the life of the anthill, even to the extent of destroying himself for the sake of the group. 
But he says, suppose that we endow the ant with knowledge contained in Russell's book and with the freedom to make choices. The ant feels the powerful pressure of instinct, pushing him to self-destruction. But he asks, why should he voluntarily embrace this fate? Why should he have any reason to choose to deliberately carry out the suicidal program to which instinct prompts him? Why should he regard the future existence of a million, million other ants as more important to him than his own continued existence? After all, they're all but ants, fleeting products of uh, animation, doomed to be annihilated by mindless and meaningless forces. Since that all that he has and is and ever can have is his own present existence, insofar as he is free from the domination of the blind force of instinct, he will opt for life, his own life. Now, why should the humanist choose any differently? The fact is that apart from a theistic frame of life, there is no foundation for right living. He hasn't given us any reason to think that nihilism would not be true. Secondly, I argue there are good reasons to think that Christianity is true. Dr. Morgenthaler merely says, well, why is Christianity better than Islam? I just presented numerous reasons why I think Christianity is true. But now let me ask him, why is humanism better than Islam? Why is humanism better than Hinduism? Humanism isn't tolerant. They think that these theistic religions are wrong. So why is humanism true instead of these other views? He didn't refute what I had to say about the Big Bang Theory, nor the evidence for the beginning of the universe. Uh, as for Jesus, he simply says it's, it's a legend, but in so doing, he goes against the consensus of scholarship. That's simply not a responsible position from a New Testament scholar. Therefore, I think that it's clear that, uh, that Christianity is the more rational worldview, and I'd like to invite Dr. Morgenthaler to consider the Christian worldview for himself. Dr. Craig says, what's the proof for secular humanism? Uh, there's proof each statement that I made can be proven on the basis of the, science, the natural sciences, of the development of human beings, of what psychology and psychiatry and others tell us. Uh, so, as I said again, we don't have absolute proofs of uh, the whole kind of thing because secular humanism has no dogma. It is a response to the knowledge we have of our world, of the universe, <clears throat> of ourselves as biological organisms endowed with a tremendous mind and intelligence. And whatever statement I make, I'm ready to back it up with evidence. However, there's no evidence for the existence of a God. There's no evidence for a statement that God cares, or, or that God is powerful enough and good enough to make changes in the world. It is possible to understand whatever happened in human history without any reference to God, except the influence that God ideas and religions have had on people, on proselytization, on religious wars and whatnot. That is possible. And Dr. Craig cannot get away from the idea that so much evil does exist and so much violence does exist that God permits it if he is there. A good God, an all-powerful God, permits all that evil. Children and babies that die by the millions in our world without having committed obviously any sin, they're not big enough to do that except maybe original sin. You cannot get away from this idea. It's something that religionists 
cannot explain. It's unexplainable. It's unexplainable in the light of psychology of what we know now, what creates violence in this world. And why does any person become what he does? Why did Hitler become Hitler? And why did Martin Luther King become what he did? And we know, at least we know almost completely, that the formative influences are in the first years of childhood. And that if a baby is given care and love and affection and respect for its uniqueness and is being nurtured in a family situation, that baby will become a loving, responsible, caring person will be able to relate to others lovingly. Whereas if a baby is neglected and brutalized, that baby might accumulate so much hate within its soul that will later take out that hate on somebody, either on himself or herself, by becoming a drug addict or an alcoholic or, or, or committing suicide or in taking it out on others by beating his wife or his children, or if he has power by producing concentration camps, or leading, leading people into war. This inner violence will have an effect. And this is explained on simple psychological grounds. And this is, its, this is why it's so important that we create a world where children are loved and being cared for and that only parents who are willing and able to provide good care and love and affection and availability should have children and that others should be allowed not to have any. We are comparing here a world view which is secular humanism which is based on our present day knowledge with a religion that was created 2,000 years ago in a tribal agricultural society whose values do not correspond any longer to the society in which we live. We have an overpopulated world now with tremendous problems such as overpopulation, the soiling of the environment, the threat of atomic war. That didn't exist 2,000 years ago. And some of that, fortunately, Christianity now has become a mild religion. That hasn't always been so. When you see the religious wars between different factions of Christianity, you see the cruelty and the suffering inflicted on people who are either dissenters or of a different persuasion. Well, fortunately, we have a good evolution. But the fact that the symbol of the religion is the suffering of Christ on the cross, and why would a good, loving father permit his only son to suffer such a terrible, sadistic, cruel death. What for? He could have given this son to mankind under other conditions. And for centuries, because of that image and because of that symbol, suffering was supposed to be something valuable and glorious. It is none of that. Suffering is terrible for the development of human personality. It creates rage, it creates frustration, it creates bitterness and cynicism. And because of this extolling of suffering, there was so much cruelty in the Christian religion, which over the ages created the Inquisition and the burning of millions of women who were considered to be witches 
fortunately gone away from that and there's been a good evolution. So it is obvious, and Dr. Craig hasn't addressed any of the concerns that I, uh, that I addressed as to real problems we have to deal with. The attitude to women is inferior. Even now, the Catholic Church would not ordain women as priests because the Pope said that uh, Jesus had only male apostles. Imagine 2,000 years ago, in a male-dominated society where women didn't count almost for nothing, to have women as apostles of Jesus wasn't possible. We live in different times. Women deserve equality. They're full human beings. Let the church come into the 20th century and let Christianity change. And I hope it will change under the influence of humanist ideas as some churches are coming to change slowly and reluctantly. The United Church, the Anglican Church, has started ordaining some women as priests or ministers. There are even a few Jewish rabbis who are women now. So there is a change, slowly, but being bound by dogma and tradition, they cannot change completely. And we have to drag these religions into the 20th century, and it's important that humanist ideas as to the welfare of people, as to what happens to people when they're subjected to bad influences. Eventually, religions will change. And obviously, what is important is not really whether some people believe in God or not. It's what they do with their lives. What they do with people who are different. Whether we can live together in harmony. And obviously, we have to live in harmony with others. And hopefully, Christians and Jews and Buddhists and Muslims and humanists can work together to create a better society. When Dr. Morgenthaler spoke in his last speech of being bombarded by dogma and, and faith, this sounded more descriptive of his position than of mine. Uh, the fact is that we have not yet heard in this debate this evening any arguments, any evidence for the truth of secular humanism. Dr. Morgenthaler seems to equate secular humanism with a, 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 a series of ethical principles, ethical modes of action. But the problem with that is, is that you could be a Christian and adopt those sorts of values. That's not the distinguishing mark of humanism. The distinguishing mark of humanism is its commitment to first, atheism, and secondly, to the fact that human beings are the source of value. And he must defend those if he's to show that humanism is true. Now, I argue that neither of those has been defended in tonight's debate. First, there's no good reason to deny that God exists. I attempted to answer the problem of evil, and basically all he did was just repeat that children and babies are killed innocently. I, I concede that fact, but return to my rebuttal concerning there's no inconsistency about the intellectual problem of evil, and that evil actually proves the existence of God. As for the emotional problem, I suggested that this can be alleviated somewhat, but doesn't disprove theism. Now. Dr. Morgenthaler says, but look at the suffering that takes place innocently in the world. Let me remind him, it is not God who kills babies and children, it is men, uh, and who do it by their own free will. God has permitted this, but on the Christian view, God is also going to judge people for their actions, and they will be held responsible. He says, babies need nurture. 
He says babies need nurture and care. Well, of course they need nurture and care. No Christian disagrees with that. That's not distinctive of humanism. Uh, we've got to have some arguments for why humanism is true. He says Christianity is morbid because it has God, uh, God's son suffering, and suffering is wrong. Um, let me suggest to you that the reason Christ suffered, according to the scripture, is because God is a holy God. And had he not had the penalty for sin paid, then his holiness would have been compromised. And therefore, at the cross of Christ, we see both the love of God as he himself pays his own penalty for our sin, that we might come to know him in a personal way. He takes the penalty for sin that we deserve, but we also see the holiness of God as God's just demand for punishment of sin is carried out. What about my second point? There's no good reason to think human beings are the source of value. And I argued if God does not exist, why wouldn't nihilism be true? I'll put that question to you again, Dr. Morgenthaler, straight. Why isn't Nietzsche right, Dr. Morgenthaler? Why wouldn't nihilism be true? Uh, he says that Christianity is cruel, but may I suggest to you that atheism is cruel because it supp supplies no basis for moral living. Richard Wormbrandt, a minister who has been tortured in communist prisons for his faith, writes, The cruelty of atheism is hard to believe when men have no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil. There is no reason to be human. There is no restraint from the depths of evil which is in man. The communist torturers often said, There is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. Dostoevsky, the great Russian author, expressed it this way, if there is no immortality, then all things are permitted. Only within the confines of a theistic worldview do we have a foundation which allows us to affirm the values of human beings, to affirm the value and equality of women, to affirm the importance of raising and nurturing our children, to affirm the values of tolerance, of brotherhood, of peace, without the theistic foundation all of these things are simply floating in the air, and therefore we cannot, uh, on the humanistic worldview, condemn those who, like the Nazis in Germany, choose to exterminate millions of people just because they're different. Acts of self-sacrifice, I pointed out, are particularly inept on an atheistic view. Why should I sacrifice my all-too-brief existence for somebody else? Let me give you an example. Two years ago, there was a terrible midwinter air crash in Washington, D.C., an airplane uh, taking off from Dallas Airport smashed into a bridge spanning the Potomac River, hurling its passengers into the icy waters. As the rescue helicopters came, attention was focused on one man who again and again passed the dangling rope ladder to others that they might be saved. Six times he passed the ladder by. When the helicopters came again, he was gone. He had freely given his life that others might live. Now, on the atheistic worldview, that man was not noble. He was not morally praiseworthy. He did the stupidest thing possible. He should have gone for the rope ladder first, pushed others away if necessary in order to survive. But to give up his all-too-brief existence, all the existence he will ever know for others whom he didn't even know, why? What for? As Michael Roos, an atheist philosopher from Guelph, says, there's neither cause nor good evolutionary reason to make a dead fool out of yourself in the name of morality. That's what this man was on an atheistic worldview. But on a Christian worldview, acts of self-sacrifice are a morally praiseworthy thing that reflect the supreme self-giving sacrifice of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. 
His voluntary act of self-sacrifice for the good of humanity is the model and the mold for acts of self-sacrifice that we as Christians seek to emulate. I then argue that there are good reasons to think Christianity is true. And again, Dr. Morgenthaler says, look at the religious wars, look at the intolerance and the hatred. That is not to be identified with Christianity. Just ask yourself this question. Would Jesus have taken up a gun to, to shoot Catholics? Would Jesus have served as a guard at Auschwitz? The, the question is ludicrous. I'm not defending here all the foibles and fallacies of the church throughout history, as he doesn't have to defend all the atrocities perpetrated by humanists as well. The point is that I've argued a personal creator exists, and we've yet to hear a refutation of this. I've argued that Jesus is the personal revelation of God, and he's yet to disprove that either, or to impugn the character of Christ himself. Now, he says, look, there's no evidence that God uh, cares about us. There's no need of God to explain events of history. Yes, the evidence is there. The evidence is there in his revelation in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we see the care of God for people. Look at the way Jesus loved people, the way he took up the little children in his arms, the way he affirmed the value of human life. And as for the events of history, I submit that you cannot explain the events surrounding the life of Jesus of Nazareth without recourse to the theistic hypothesis. Particularly, I've argued, you cannot explain such things as the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus alive after his death, and the very origin of Christianity itself, apart from the hypothesis of theism. Therefore, it seems to me, once again, that we've not heard any good reasons tonight to think that humanism is true. We've heard humanistic beliefs expounded. We've heard why it's appealing, perhaps. But we've not heard an argument. We have not heard evidence that either there is no God or that human beings are the locus of all value. But secondly, I think we have seen good reasons that have gone, unfortunately, perhaps unrefuted in tonight's debate, that a personal creator exists and that he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Therefore, once again, I must affirm that Christianity, when compared to humanism, is clearly the more rational of these two worldviews. Well, Dr. Craig seems to be hung up on the existence of God. To me, it doesn't matter that much <clears throat> whether he exists or she exists or not. <clears throat> uh, a person who does not believe in God is called an atheist. And a person who says he doesn't know whether God exists is called an agnostic. A humanist is someone more in death. A humanist is someone who is committed to human values and to a better society and the democratic principles. And that's the difference. And enforced atheism, as it was practiced in the Soviet Union, is just as reprehensible as enforced religion. And the humanists would not do that. They defend human rights, the right to dissent, and also the right to religious freedom, freedom of religion and conscience. Dr. Craig asks, why would nihilism not be true? simply for the simple reason that if God did not exist, that I believe there's no, no evidence to show that he or she or it does exist, that, w that people have an altruistic streak in them. It is the nature of people to be altruistic. They have the possibility of being good and loving and caring and responsible and they also have the negative possibilities due to upbringing and due to wrong influences childhood to be sadistic 
and cruel and given good conditions, people would choose to be altruistic, to create a better and gentler society without violence and hatred. Oh, one, one remark that uh, <clears throat> I want to comment on is that Jesus would not be a guard at Auschwitz. Probably not, but the followers of Jesus were. And the persecution of Jews and other religious dissenters, like the Albigenses, for instance, were due to the intolerance of, of the, the Christian, Christian religion. The Jews were dissenters par excellence, and they were persecuted mainly because they did not believe what the Christians believed. And the Holocaust could not have happened if there had not been 2,000 years of Christian indoctrination that the Jews were terrible people and the hatred fostered by the Christian religion against the Jews. And I think it's important that Christians affirm that kind of guilt and hopefully it will not happen again. <clears throat> Dr. Craig believes that Christianity is a more rational worldview. I don't see where the rationality is. It is based on completely irrational ideas which do not jibe with our knowledge of the world and the universe as it is, with our knowledge of psychology, with all the accumulated knowledge in a world where we have television and computers and radio and atomic bombs. Uh, ideas that there's a God and he put his son on the cross and because of that uh, we are better off because we are sinners and we only good and dignified if we are good children that believe in that God and only then if you believe that Christ's sacrifice was to wash away our sins what a bizarre outlandish belief if you've been brought up to believe that that's fine. It doesn't make you better people because of that. And maybe it doesn't make you worse people. But it may prevent you from utilizing the full potential as human beings to use your intelligence, to use rationality. So, again, I respect those people who believe that. That's fine. There are other people who believe in Muhammad. There are other people who believe in Hinduism and all kinds of other gods. None of them are rational. None of them. And the only rational view is the one that's supported by scientific evidence at the present time. There's no scientific evidence that any of this, like a Jesus uh, sacrifice on the cross, and the idea that Jesus' sacrifice washed away our sins, completely irrational. You want to believe it? Fine. I don't. Many people don't. And we owe it to ourselves to believe, to respect other people's beliefs, and still live in harmony. And I wish to wrap up with uh, something that Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher and humanist, said, and he said it much better than I could. And I just want to read it. And I think this will take care of the allotted time I have. And he said in an essay which he wrote, Why I am not a Christian. He said, What we must do. We want to stand up our own feet and look fair and square at the world. It's good facts, it's bad facts, it's beauties and it's ugliness. See the world as it is and be not afraid of it. 
conquer the world by intelligence and not merely by being slavishly subdued by the terror that comes from it. The whole conception of God is a conception derived from the ancient oriental despotisms. It is a conception quite unworthy of free men. When you hear people in church debasing themselves and saying that they are miserable sinners and all the rest of it, it seems contemptible and not worthy of self-respecting human beings. We ought to stand up and look the world frankly in the face. We ought to make the best we can of the world, and if it, not, if it is not as good as we wish, after all, it will still be better than what these others have made of it in all these ages. A good world needs knowledge, kindliness, and courage. It does not need a regretful hankering after the past or a fettering of the free intelligence by the words uttered long ago by ignorant men. It needs a fearless outlook and a free intelligence. It needs hope for the future, not looking back all the time towards a past that is dead, which we trust will be far surpassed by the future that our intelligence can create. Thank you. It always tickles me somewhat to hear the emotional denunciations of Christianity given by humanists. But when you ask them for an argument, you ask them for evidence, it's so strangely silent. First, I've argued there's no good reason to think humanism is true. Give me a good reason to deny that God exists. He's abandoned his argument about the problem of evil, and now he admits it doesn't matter if God exists or not, thereby contradicting the Humanist Manifesto and the platform on which he said he was going to debate tonight, namely, that there is no personal God. But of course it makes sense, because if God does exist, then humanism isn't true. Then God is the locus of, of value, and we need to ask ourselves the question, how can we come to know and worship and, and serve this God in an appropriate way? Secondly, I said there's no good reason to think that human beings are the source of value. Particularly, if God does not exist, why wouldn't nihilism be true? He responds, well, uh, because people have an altruistic streak in them. Sure they do, but remember the quotation from John Hick? As he pointed out, uh, the modern evolutionist thinks of altruism as something genetically inculcated into us by evolution, like the ants. Uh, immolating themselves for the sake of the ant heap. But the question is, why follow that altruistic streak if there is no, uh, if there is no God? As Michael Russo, a modern evolutionist, says, morality is an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process, just as are your other adaptations. It has no existence or being beyond this, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Therefore, acts of self-sacrifice, acts of moral, uh, uh, Value simply do not exist within the atheistic worldview. He says, but Soviet atheism is abominable. I'm not defending that. Exactly. But why is Soviet atheism wrong on his view? Why is Soviet atheism abominable? What gives him the right to condemn the Soviet version of atheism in preference to his humanistic atheism? You see, Morgenthaler has the right values, he wants to actually borrow and affirm traditional Christian values about the importance and integrity of persons, the dignity of man, and so forth. 
but he's lost the ontological foundation for affirming those values. He doesn't have the foundation stones in his worldview for that affirmation, and therefore they just hang in the air. They're just affirmed by a leap of faith. What I offer him tonight is not a new, uh, a new set of values. I offer him a foundation for humanistic values which Christians themselves affirm. Now, what about the second point, that there are good reasons to believe that Christianity is true? We've seen no refutation tonight of my first argument that a personal creator exists. Notice that I appealed both the philosophical argument and of what the humanist cherishes most, scientific evidence, and we've heard no refutation. I then suggested that Jesus Christ is the revelation of God and appealed to the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus as evidence. He says, Christianity does not agree with all of the accumulated knowledge of mankind. I sure wish I had heard some of that accumulated knowledge shared with us tonight. What accumulated knowledge is inconsistent with Christianity? Give me the evidence and I'll try to refute it and, and, and deal with it. He says, Christianity is bizarre. All right, disprove it. Give me an argument against it. I'm, I'm here to debate. But I simply haven't heard any refutation of the evidence I've presented, nor have I heard any good arguments against it. The fact is that it is the humanist, friends, who is the one who is betraying his own methodology. He is the one who does not demand proof for every statement of fact or theory. He affirms his humanist philosophy of life by faith, while denouncing religion and Christianity out of the other side of his mouth. It seems to me, they're quite, therefore, quite clearly that in tonight's debate, it's, it's Christianity that has provided the evidence, has provided the argument, and has tried to refute objections to that worldview. And therefore, I want to close by inviting you, if you're thinking about these things tonight, to think about becoming a Christian. Christianity is true. I'm convinced that Christianity stands intellectually head and shoulders above any other worldview that you could take, whether it be humanism, atheism, agnosticism, Marxism, or what have you. Christianity makes good sense. And therefore, I want to invite you, when you go home tonight, when you're alone in your room, you're lying in bed, and you're, you're thinking about these things, ask yourself, could it really be that there is a personal God who actually exists, who loves me, who created the, the world, who created me? Could this really be true? Could he really have revealed himself in Jesus Christ? Could Jesus really be the revelation of God and have risen from the dead in vindication of that claim? And I want to invite you to begin to read the Gospel of John in the New Testament and ask yourself with an open mind and an open heart, could this be true? A little over 20 years ago, uh, not being raised in a Christian home myself, I began to investigate the claims of Christianity. And I found that they met not only the needs of my heart, but the needs of my intellect as well. And ever since that moment when I committed my life to Christ, my life has never been the same. He's been a living reality, present with me every day, and I've never regretted that step. I hope that some of you tonight will consider taking that step to investigate the claims of Christ and to yield yourself in love and commitment to the offer of forgiveness that God gives you through Jesus Christ. I guarantee you that if you take that step, you too will never regret it. Thank you.